And after these things, that's how the text before us begins tonight. It's John chapter 19, verse 38. And after these things, the kinds of things you've just been reminded of, the uh, trials, the uh, arrest, the uh, trumped up charges, the abuse, the humiliation, the beatings, the whippings, after the crucifixion. After these things, John 19 verse 38 says, Joseph of Arimathea, what do we know about that place and the man of that place? Not much. Arimathea was a city, well, a village, about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem, not a place of great significance. Neither was Joseph, really. He was a resident of Arimathea, and what do we know about him? Well, only what the other gospel writers tell us. So in Matthew's account, for instance, chapter 27, verse 57, we read, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. So that tells us something more about this man. He was wealthy. And then if you consult uh, the gospel account written by Mark, chapter 15, verse 43, we read, Joseph of Arimathea came a prominent member of the council, another word for the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish ruling entity, the equivalent of our Supreme Court. So we're finding out more about this Joseph from Arimathea. He was wealthy. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And then Luke tells us in chapter 23, verses 50 and 51, a man named Joseph who was a member of the Council, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. So we find out more through Luke about Joseph. He was a good man. He did not go along with the prevailing decision of the Sanhedrin to scheme, to plot, uh, to arrest, to try, to murder Jesus. He objected to that in some fashion. And we know something else about this man. He was looking beyond the confines and throes of the present reality to something even greater. He was seeking the kingdom of God. That's what we know about him. And then through the fourth gospel writer, whose gospel we have been really studying quite a bit over the last several years, John here in this verse tells us, and after these things, Joseph of Arimathea being, here we go, a disciple of Jesus, ah, but a secret one. Why? For fear of the Jews. So we now find out this resident of Arimathea, a Jewish guy, a rich guy, a uh, member of the ruling class, a good man, as far as men are reckoned, someone who had his sights set on future realities. Well, he was a follower, a disciple of Jesus, but he was a secret one, and he was reluctant to be open about it. He was reluctant to go public. Well, it would cost him quite a bit. We ought to sympathize a little bit. Let's not be overly critical. He ran the risk of forfeiting his position, his wealth, maybe even his life if the Jewish religious leadership found out that he is associating himself, connecting himself with this radical rabbi Jesus whose death they called for. And so I'm wondering about why he did what he did. He took a big risk, this secret disciple. The text says he asked Pilate, 
that he might take away the body of Jesus. There was the body of Jesus because Jesus had died. And on his own initiative, it's perplexing to me that the secret disciple, the timid one who did not want to risk what he had, somehow was motivated by something we know not of yet, was moved to go to the very powerful, intimidating Roman governor Pilate there to make a request for the dead body of this insurrectionist in the eyes of Rome, this radical rabbi in the eyes of the Jews, He requested his body. What motivated him to do that? I don't know. But in spite of the risks, he came forward to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. I mean, he had been fearful about losing his wealth and his status, but now he uses these very things to gain access to Pilate, the Roman governor. Not everyone could meet with the ruler of Rome there in the Holy Land, and so... Suddenly, Joseph was moved to parlay his position, his status, in order to make this request. And here's another surprise. Pilate granted permission. That's what it says. I don't get it. Why would Pilate have said, yes, you can have his body? Why would he cooperate? I don't get it. You see, normally, after the Romans crucified somebody, especially that somebody who rebelled against Rome, someone who committed acts of sedition, real or alleged, against Rome, after that one was crucified, often that, one, that one's body would be left impaled on the cross, sometimes for days, even after he had expired. Why, why would that happen? Well, it was a deterrent to others as they watched the decaying body of the crucified one. What would happen to the body? Well, In many cases, wild animals would pick it apart little by little. The other option exercised by the Romans was to remove the body from the cross and to take it to a special place, had to be outside the city. It was a dumping ground for criminals, kind of a mass grave. That's where you deposit junk. And so that would be the other option. Now, I'll tell you, this was not an option. Family members were not permitted to have the body of the crucified one if the crucified one was crucified for resisting Rome. And so Joseph steps up, you see, to ask for the body of the Lord Jesus, which would otherwise have ended up in a dump with other so-called criminals. And Pilate assented to Joseph's request. You know, I think he did it. I'm guessing here. I think he did it to further humiliate the Jews. Remember the Jewish religious leadership pronounced upon terrible tragedy. Their own Messiah. Horrific things. He's a pretender to the throne. He's not our God. This is not the kingly one we're looking for. He's a criminal. Get rid of him. And all of a sudden, if the Roman governor uh, saw fit to allow this Joseph from Arimathea to give this Jesus a fit burial, oh my goodness, I think Pilate realized that would further be a slap in the face of the Jewish religious leadership. And I think maybe that was his motive in saying, yes, Joseph. And so he, Joseph, came, the text says, therefore, and he took away his body. Joseph had not spoken about Jesus in his life. The text clearly says he was a secret disciple. Is this possible to be a secret disciple? Well, let me answer since I have the microphone. 
an opinion. Yeah, I think it is. But not indefinitely. Sooner or later, something happens. Well, the Lord Jesus sometimes forces that timid one who doesn't want to take a risk out into deeper water. Sometimes it's not of one's own volition. They're just their circumstances, and you feel compelled sooner or later to identify in some way with this Jesus who saved you. Well, this has happened some way to Joseph. And in his actions, as described here in the text, he is described as one clearly identifying at great personal risk with this Jesus. And in so doing, he becomes God's instrument. I don't know if Joseph realized this. He becomes God's instrument in keeping the body of God's only begotten son from being tossed into a criminal's grave. This very risky, inexplicable action by Joseph actually becomes, think about this, the fulfillment of a rather amazing prophecy. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 53, verse 9. It's written, what, 700 years before all this? Listen, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The one, this Jesus, who really had no place even to lie his head, well, this one would be buried in a rich man's tomb in fulfillment of Isaiah 53 Nine, Joseph, I think, had no idea that this random act of love was in direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 9. You see, God is orchestrating all this. He orchestrated every event in uh, the life of the Lord Jesus. Herein is the sovereignty of God put on display. The Romans weren't calling the shots. The Jews were not calling the shots. You and I are not sovereign. Only Almighty God is, and we see it even in the burial of his only begotten son. Why was the father so interested? Well, because what the father provided for the son was an indication of his intense favor bestowed upon the son. The father, in making sure the son had a fit burial, was vindicating the son. He was declaring to us, ah, this one suffered and died a criminal's death, but he is inherently and by nature no criminal. He's the sinless one. So the father saw to it, even through a hitherto timid one, a secret disciple, Joseph, the father saw to it that his son would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Why is the father so, so focused on the burial of his son? Folks, the burial of Jesus is a very integral part of what we call the gospel message. Why is that? Well, the burial proves that he died. You see, as a general rule, we don't bury people until there's evidence of their death. The burial of the Lord Jesus was such a thing. Jesus died and therefore was buried. And so we have Paul himself sharing later on in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance whatever else it is that is important for you to communicate to the outside world, make this the matter of first importance. I delivered this to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. 
and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures without a burial, there is no resurrection. Death is the prerequisite for resurrection life. And so all this is part of the gospel, and that's why the Father is so superintending even the details regarding the very burial of his only begotten Son. And now we read about still yet another man of whom we've read about before. John told us some stuff about this one earlier on. And so in verse 39, now we have, and Nicodemus, second character in the story, he came also. It is in John chapter 3, a long time ago, that we read, now there was a man of the Pharisees, so we see Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, by which we can surmise he, like Joseph, was a Sanhedrin member. He, like Joseph, saw the things that Jesus did. And as a result, Nicodemus concluded, good night, this one is not ordinary, he's extraordinary, this one must come from God. Therefore, John tells us, this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. John emphasizes the point, by night. And so you see, again, as with Joseph, Nicodemus was afraid of public open identification with Christ, he too was a secret disciple. But as with Joseph, something changed him. Something moved him to move out of darkness in the cover of night. And in the daylight, he took a great risk, the risk of identifying with Christ. Folks, I think it's better to be a secret disciple than no disciple at all. But for every secret disciple, as I previously mentioned, I think there's going to be a time when you're at a point of decision and you find yourself, by the mercy of God, no longer being able to deny your connection and attachment to him. And somehow you cast caution to the wind and in spite of the cost, you have to declare your identification with Christ. And so John tells us in verse 39, and Nicodemus came also who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and Aloes was about 100 pounds weight. That's a lot. Actually, it wasn't 100 pounds. It's 100 pounds by Roman pound reckoning. But a Roman pound is lighter than our pound. A Roman pound equals 12 uh, ounces. Our pounds equal 16 ounces. So if you do the math, it was 75 pounds, not 100, that uh, Nicodemus brought with him. And that's still quite a volume of aromatic spices, myrrh and aloes. In fact, it's the kind of volume of aromatic spices that would accompany the passing of royalty. It was befitting King Jesus, you see. Myrrh, aloes, they smell good. And that's the design for applying them to a deceased body. It's to somehow overpower the smell of death and decay. And this is the service Nicodemus rendered to the Lord. Now verse 40. And so they, now we have the two secret disciples, Joseph and Nicodemus together. They took the body of Jesus and here's what they did. They bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews as a general rule, Jews do not embalm nor cremate. They don't do that. What they do is they lay out the body of the deceased 
on a long piece of linen, they start at the end of the feet, they fold it over the feet, wrap it around the head and back again. Then they bind the feet together. They bind the hands to the body. Then sometimes they put a separate cloth over the face of the deceased. And as I thought about all this that these two hitherto secret disciples are going through, it occurred to me they defiled themselves in so doing this. <laughs> you, can't, you can't make contact with a dead body and remain spiritually undefiled. According to the law, this is serious business because it's Passover time. You know what Joseph and Nicodemus now did? They just disqualified themselves from participating in the Passover feast. I think it didn't matter to them at all. They found Jesus. <laughs> they found the Passover lamb. What do they care about Passover? They found out there's no longer any need for the sacrifice of an endless succession of bulls and goats and all that stuff for Jesus, the lamb of God, paid it all. So this is what happened. Now in verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified... There was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. You can go to Israel and see tombs dating to the time of this tomb. The group you just prayed for, Lord willing, will have the privilege of seeing one um, carved out of the stone. <laughs> 2,000 years old. And so Jesus was laid in that kind of tomb in this garden. Matthew tells us the tomb was Joseph's own and that Joseph carved it out of the limestone for himself and for his family. But Jesus, he didn't have a tomb of his own. You know why? Because he's God and fleshed and God is not, God doesn't need a tomb. A tomb is not a fitting abode for the eternal deity, almighty God. Jesus simply occupied a tomb, not for his benefit, but for ours. But not for long, three days, and then up from the grave he arose. And then verse 42, we read, therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So Mark's account tells us, Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which is nine in the morning. Mark uh, furthermore tells us there was darkness from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, which is from 12 in the afternoon to 3 p.m. Therefore, Jesus was crucified somewhere around 3 p.m. Now that means not too long after this, the sun would set. And at sundown, that would be the inauguration of the Sabbath, not any ordinary Sabbath, the Passover Sabbath, during which time you can do no labor nor any work, according to Scripture. Therefore, it was absolutely mandatory that any burial, any handling of the body of Jesus must uh, be completed before sundown. You see, it's the day of preparation. And so these are the circumstances where reading about the burial of this particular Jesus. They've been so graciously recorded for us by Almighty God so we can know. And even though we know so much, there's really something for me 
Um, we don't know. It's an unanswered question that begs our attention, and it's this question, what in the world was it that motivated these two secret disciples to come out of the closet and admit we belong to Jesus? What was it? They were so reluctant to talk about Jesus in his life. What is it, therefore, that motivated him, them to willingly identify with Jesus in his death? And then it occurred to me, that's the answer. It was his death. They saw it close up. There was something about his death, the fact that it happened, the way that it happened, that motivated them to identify with him no matter what the cost. Folks, when they surveyed the wondrous cross, they, they realized that just what Jesus' death meant for them, for everyone who believes in him, and they became, as a result, quite willing to live fully and openly for him. And I think it's because to them, the cross revealed at least two things. Here's the first. It revealed the desperate nature of our sin. Look at here. When you look at the price, what it costs to provide atonement, to cover for our sin, the shed blood of God's only begotten son, you see the immensity and intensity of our sin. The problem, the enormity of the problem, it equates to the enormity of the solution. Someone has said, couldn't God have forgiven our sin any other way? No, don't you think he would have? Don't you think he would have spared his son the ravages of the cross? The fact there was no other way but for the sinless Jesus to die for sinless, sinful ones like you and I. When they looked at the cross, they were persuaded of the desperate nature of their sin. And so the cross persuaded them of the greatness of their sin. And secondly, I think the cross persuaded them of the greatness of God's mercy and grace. Good night. Look at the remedy for sin God was willing to provide. His only begotten son for one such as you and I. Now, folks, as part of Jewish burial custom in that day, the body would have to be very carefully washed so that all foreign matter would be removed from it. So think about this. As Joseph and Nicodemus uh, participated in the, promise, in the process of doing this to the body of Jesus, think about what their experience was. They would have become strikingly and starkly aware of what it cost Jesus to atone for their sins. You see, they would have noticed fragments, pieces of thorns pressed into his scalp. They would have... They would have seen his bloody, matted hair. They would have observed bruises on his face. And then they would have turned his body over, and when they saw his back, I'll bet they gasped. They would have seen splinters on his arms, on his shoulders. They would have seen his back bruised, bloodied from the whipping he endured. <laughs> and then when they looked to his hands and his feet, holes, they were pierced through and bruised and bloodied and discolored. And then they would have looked beneath his rib cage and they would have seen a gaping wound. That's the place where the spear had been thrust into his side so as to give us evidence of the fact that he truly did die. 
I mean, the reality of the death of Jesus would have been literally in their face, in their nostrils. Every sense would have been engaged at this point. And that is what motivated them to live more fully and openly for him. I'm sure they asked and answered this question rightly. They asked, how could we not openly live for a God who so willingly died for us? So all this moved them to step out of the shadows and to stand up for Christ. From this point on, people would identify them with Jesus. Can I step on some toes with a question you must answer privately? What about you? Do people identify you with Jesus? Neighbors, co-workers, fellow students, even church people. Do people identify you with Jesus? They may not welcome your message. They may not welcome you. But have you provided enough evidence for them in being open enough in your word and ways so they know you're a Christ one? You're his disciple and not such a secret one. You're not keeping it secret. Your values your convictions, the use of your time, the use of your money, what you do with your life, how you prioritize it, your sense of morals and ethics. Do they know all of that has been informed by your connection with Jesus? If not, could I ask you, why not? Have you surveyed the wondrous cross just as Joseph and Nicodemus did? There was a man named Isaac Watts who wrote a hymn by this name, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. As we draw to a close, I'd like to ask you, if you don't mind, to stand to your feet. And as you stand, I want to ask my beloved brother John Mark to make his way here. We must sing this hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. John Mark will lead us and then dismiss us. Um, I don't want us to sing it just because we have to have a way to end the service. I want us to sing it so that you could pay attention to the words. and Maybe ask God, if you have a need in this area, to do for you what he so graciously did for Joseph and Nicodemus. These are not the days to be a secret disciple. The world's going nuts, folks. Every looney tune out there seems to be unashamed of the uh, crazy things they believe in, <laughs> but we've been entrusted with truth. How could we withhold it? How dare we? And yet there's something in us. Maybe it's temperament. Maybe it's bad early experiences. Don't want to beat up on anybody. I don't know what it is. An inherent reluctance to risk relationships in people's favor. I'm telling you, there will come a point that no matter how carefully you have been to win the world's favor, you won't have it. No, 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 you'll be forced down into deep water. There'll come a time when you'll state your ground about marriage and about abortion and about all of these things, and you'll say, oh, no, I can't put up with this. I have to speak up. So as we sing this song, I'd like it to be an opportunity. Well, I hope for God's spirit to maybe stir us up when we survey the wondrous cross. Behold the ramifications of the death of Jesus Christ for us. 
I hope as a result we may go from this place willing to live more fully and more openly for him. So let's sing this together. John Mark, if you please. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to thank you that you gave your life for our sins, that we might have eternal life. We thank you for dying on that cross for us. We thank you for coming out of that tomb alive and victorious. All we have is you, Lord. And we thank you for what all of that meant. Thank you for our study tonight. Lord, I hope that will help us draw closer to you and walk with you more this week. 
Thank you for those who are here. Bless their homes. Bless us as we go home tonight. Pray that we never forget what you've done for us. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.